0: Welcome to this interview for the University of St Andrews Institute of Intellectual History series, New Works in Intellectual History. I'm here today with Sibilla Shoupers, who teaches International Relations at the University of St Andrews, and she is with us today to talk about her work on Carl von Clausewitz and Hugh Strachan. So I'm really excited to talk to you about this today, um, and I just want to welcome you and say thank you for talking with us. Um, so to start with, I just wanted to see if you could give us a brief overview of who Clausewitz was and the way that Stracke engages with him.
1: Um right, of course. Well, first of all, thank you for, for having me. Um it's always nice to hear when people are interested uh, in 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 my work. Um so I came, I really came my interest in Clausewitz um started because I had studied Philosophy at Humboldt University in Berlin, which is um, due to its own uh, history, has got a very strong focus on German idealism. So we're talking about everything that comes after Kant. And in fact, it was kind of—I um, would have to look up when it was when the the f- uh, founding date was. But it was during Clausewitz's lifetime that Humboldt University was founded, actually, and created. And after having pursued research in strategic studies more broadly, and Clausewitz is obviously somebody whose name you cannot avoid there, um, I realized that there was actually quite a lot in Clausewitz that scholars hadn't quite picked up. There were references to um, people like Fichte or Hegel or uh, Schelling that he he didn't really reference them explicitly, but I could kind of pick out that that's where he must have taken that thought. Um, so we would call that plagiarism today, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just thought there was there was something to kind of you know look look more into, um, and so I did that. But um, that kind of work was supported, not really supported, but partly inspired, let's say, by work that um, Hugh Strawn had started doing on Clausewitz, with especially with his um, the intellectual biography of um, on war um which was i think published in 2007 so that basically um argued that we needed to leave the cold war interpretation of clausewitz behind one that was very much kind of furthered by peter pere and michael howard and their translation of on war which first um was published in 1976 which was a very kind of rationalist take on clausewitz and his um his his theory of war, Um, and plus, I mean, um, I worked in the Leverhulme program on the changing character of war, um, together with Hugh Straughan, so we always had these, um, these kind of discussions about Clausewitz, and as a matter of fact, I remember on my first day starting there, another colleague took me took me to the site and said, you know, um, you'll get along well with you, he will ask you lots about kind of uh, arcane German expressions that you found in Klautowicz, <laughs> it needs a sort of, you know, almost like a critical take on, so that's, that's how my interest started.
0: That sounds really interesting, and when you were doing the research, what were the main conclusions that you came to that, that you've pulled out in the article? Um, I think
1: so. <sighs> I think the main conclusion was that um, Hugh Strong had started something that was quite important, which was kind of um, trying to unearth Clausewitz, sort of the real Clausewitz from what people thought Clausewitz said, and which was deeply influenced by the Cold War interpretation. And it's not only um, uh, Paré and Howard. It was it was it was many more people who um, uh, effectively kind of contributed to that kind of narrative um, of Clausewitz. Um, what what did I take away? I think I think I also took away that it's, uh, and I think that's something that is more important for somebody who's not a um, German native speaker like I am is how difficult it is to research Clausewitz um, if because of the the um language barriers, I would say, and because of the kind of um paucity of um English translations or in fact translations in other um in other uh languages uh, that it is really very very difficult to access Clausewitz properly if. If you don't read any German, and even if you read German, then you would have to be very advanced in a way in order to be able to um, to understand it. So I think that is still quite staggering, um, you know, in the era of Google Translate and all that, where effectively language should not be a barrier anymore. And yeah. Clausewitz is so ubiquitous in strategic studies. Everybody quotes Clausewitz, right? And yet... Actually, if you look at it, very few people actually have the privilege of reading him and being able to understand what he says. And I think that also points to a broader um, issue, maybe. And that is something that I'm sure that, you know, you will, any student of intellectual history will have come across that language is still a major barrier. And that critical editions and translations are not really what is kind of facilitated by academia in a way. I mean, I have at various points thought about, you know, I could do a critical edition of closet, I could do a new translation. Um, I've even started speaking to the uh, to the editor at Oxford University Press and said, you know, would you be, would you be happy, would you be looking at a new translation, would you, would you consider a new translation, right? And he said, of course you would, but the thing is it would take ages, it would take years and it would be career suicide so sadly I can't do it um, even if I had sort of a team of people around me I, I don't even know I don't even know where I would start effectively right. So.
0: Yeah it's uh the language barriers are definitely something that I know a few of us on my course hit during our studies so yeah definitely something that I can relate to uh-huh. um, but yeah I think it, I the fact that you can do the translation sounds really interesting and that you can access it through your native language and be like, I can read this and, and see it is is really interesting, I think.
1: Um, I think there is a point beyond Clausewitz even, and that is sort of, you know, it, it, it then very much also impacts on what the canon is in intellectual history, because it will obviously um, disadvantage people who don't write in English or French or German. And if, if German is already difficult to access, then, yeah. you know, how much more difficult must be to uh, access other languages?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so, what led you to do the research? Was that there a particular moment that was sort of a turning point for you that you went, a light bulb went off and you were like, this is something that I really want to pursue? going forward? I think you've kind of already alluded to it, but it would just be really interesting if there was sort of a, a key moment for you. Um, yeah, I think I think it was,
1: I mean, and I, I have to differentiate here between the article and my my book on, on Clausewitz on, yeah. on wars. wars. Um, so the article is basically part of a fest shift, and that was something that we wanted to do for Hugh Strahan because, you know, everyone is very grateful, and he's he's always been such a fantastic colleague. And not only that. I mean, his work on Clausewitz is 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 actually a small part of his overall achievements, which are just massive. I mean, he's the most renowned scholar of the First World War, um, and you know, the list goes on. Effectively, um, definitely. I think, in terms of what what really struck me with Clausewitz is. Um, I don't know. I mean, probably everyone claims for themselves that they 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 take a revisionist approach to their to their research or something. They they come up with something that nobody else has ever seen or done or whatever. Um that of course has to be has always to always be kind of you know consumed with a pinch of salt, I suppose. But um what led me to Clausewitz is not only that I um, kind of picked up these things that struck me as very um, close to, you know, what I had been studying, the German idealism part, where I just thought, you know, how useless, <laughs> how useless is that kind of knowledge? I will never, never come back to that. That was really boring, right? Um, and yeah, quite often there is this kind of irony in your life that you you come back to something that you just think you really hated or, uh, you know, didn't really didn't couldn't really appreciate couldn't really appreciate the value of at that point so that's a salutary warning about how we kind of sort knowledge and all that um but more broadly i had written um a book on irregular fighters before which was, i think published in 2013 um or 14 for the first time and um one of the things that Clausewitz was often portrayed as was a he was portrayed as this kind of genius. So he did not have any kind of um, external influences. He was just somebody who didn't reference very well, um, but he certainly had lots of influences when you just read this, read it carefully. So that was the kind of intellectual history part of it. But he was he was so often kind of portrayed as the um, as as the thinker of major war of big war who had nothing to say about small war. And um, I actually, my reading of him, and that again was only enabled because I read German. Um, so all his writings on small war, he started to lecture at the Kriegsakademie in 1803, I believe. Um, and with his his first semester was a lecture series on small war. Um, and from there it went on. And, it, and the importance of people's war um, was just something that people had studied, but never really, really had put into the context of his bigger theory of war. It was just like a sort of side show for him, sort of some hobby horse. And I just felt that people really had completely misunderstood and misconstrued the the importance of small war for his general thinking.
0: Yeah, was that something that you found sort of particularly surprising, or you thought it was quite significant that people had had misunderstood that, and it was a bit of a a different approach, and it was sort of a change? Were you quite excited by that? Um. um
1: yes, yes. I, I think I. You know, but funnily, the 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 field of Clausewitz studies is is quite different from the field of irregular warfare studies, where you basically just, you know, there's lots of people who are quite outdoorsy and maybe, uh, you know, um, have been to places and have done interviews and stuff. That's the irregular warfare people. The Clausewitz people is a handful, effectively. And I mean, Paré and Howard have both sadly passed away in the last few years. Um, I think, that when did Howard die? I can't remember anyway. Um, so, it, it's shrinking at the moment, I would say, as well, or it, at least it has lost two of its really big, big um, um, people, effectively. Yeah. Um, but I think my so irregular fighters, the, the the project that I had before, irregular fighters are often not treated very well. So much of the book was about massacres and torture, and kind of detention and persecution and all that, and. I think uh, going back to intellectual history was just a sort of, uh, it just gave me a break from all that blood and gore. Um, I mean, Clausewitz himself was quite often ill, but <laughs> that's about the gravity of things um, in a way. Um, There's
0: no massacres.
1: <laughs> there were, No, there were no massacres. I mean, obviously, lots of people died during the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars and all that. But um it wasn't this it wasn't this gratuitous violence for the sake of violence, or poor yeah. uncle les autres or something like that. so um I, yeah, and it was kind of also a second hand. It, it was kind of looking at war through his eyes and not being kind of so exposed to it so I, I I just I just found that really kind of um was good for a change. I think there's only so many massacres you can take, yeah <laughs> in any given year. Uh, before you have to move on to, well, or, you know, at least as an academic, it's a privilege to be able then to kind of just do something else for a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely makes sense. So, yeah, I was about to ask um, how how it fitted with your previous research, but you've already explained that. So was, where mm-hmm. do you think it might go in the future or if you've got anything to add about how it fits with your previous research? Um, I'd be really interested to hear about that. So I think for me um it
1: um I think I've always been a sort of my my perspective is always that of an intellectual historian even if I look at at irregu- when I looked at irregular fighters I looked at the law quite a lot and the arguments about the law so that was basically intellectual history not written by a theoretician but sort of by lay people I mean our politicians our yes. courts Everyone produces intellectual history all the time. I'm sure that um, many people would would share that view. Um, so, I think from that point of view, there is not such. There is a lot of continuity. Um, and at the moment, I'm kind of um, going back a little bit to the to the first kind of intellectual history where, you know, you basically look at what people produce in in a mundane setting, not as in writing books. And and that would look more at settler colonialism and how kind of thinking about settler colonialism um, led to particular ways in which violence was organized, in which statehood was organized and all that. Um, So there is a lot of continuity in there. I think what I miss about the second kind of intellectual history where you're dealing with one thinker or maybe one and his friends, (laughs) they they write each other letters and all that. Right. So um, is the kind of you get to know them so close up and personal. So, for instance, Clausewitz, which I loved. I mean, anybody who's who's ever possessed a really old car and has kind of um, seen the next MOT approach with trepidation and all that would totally sympathize when he writes to his friend August von Gneisenau. So Clausewitz himself is pretty poor. He's pretty hard up most of the time. So he he can barely afford his life in Berlin. And he's got horse problems all the time. So his horse is lame again. And so he kind of, you know, ends his letter with um, thanking August von Gneisenau for having provided him with some kind of mount, apparently, from his... Family stables sort or of on a sort of lease basis, or something like that, and you just think it's, it makes them so human in a way to see that he's—he's he's just struggling with fairly mundane problems that we could all relate to in a way. So that's—that's that's what I miss about that. Um, yeah. yeah,
0: it's weird because even though you're looking maybe two hundred years in the past you feel like you know them so intimately because you've read all their letters and their works and their diaries and it's a bizarre position to be in because you're like, oh, I know how they think, but I don't know this person. Yes, uh
1: absolutely, yeah. And I think what is, I don't know, um, just, you know, off the cuff, I would say that many of the people who write quite a lot, um, especially in history, have suffered poor health in a way, and that was true for Clausewitz as well, it's true for Karl Marx, um, I know, and we could probably rattle off a few more, just like, you know, probably because they were bedridden or something, they had more time to read and write, that's what they could do, they could not really go out and wage war, and well, Clausewitz did that as well, but <laughs> they were kind of restricted in a way, so I think that's also something that... Um, yeah, I think it's a sort of it's it's a kind of lifestyle issue. I mean, I'm 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 not suffering from any particular illness, but it's just this kind of fairly contemplative, fairly you know. If people ask you what 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 have you done, you know, it's 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 well, I, I read a book, um, I wrote a little bit today. Yeah, <laughs> um, I walked the dog. So <laughs> you know, I think I think that's something we can particularly relate to as scholars in a way because it's it's going to be unchanging whether you write on a laptop or whether you write by hand or whether you read on a screen or whether you read in on paper or something right
0: yeah, yeah. you can definitely relate to to all the reading
1: uh-huh yeah yeah
0: yeah and finding it enjoyable as well
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> and not needing much more in a way sort of to Yeah. To live in that, to live in that universe, and to almost have to live in that universe. I mean, that's something that comes through in Clausewitz. That he never wanted to. You know, he he's a practitioner um, to a certain extent, and he's still kind of paid for by the Prussian army. So he he, you know, he's an officer. But um, this, yeah, this this perception that it's a privilege to be able to focus on something um for such a long time is also um yeah it's something that that i think we can relate to
0: definitely so would you be able to summarize what you feel the contributions are to your field of research or what you expect future researchers and students to kind of take away from what you you've said that might be significant for them
1: Uh, You know, um, I don't know. I think the pandemic pandemic was such a sobering experience as in, you know, what's the significance of my research? Um, I think I would have been much more um, kind of forthright and confident about that two years ago. Um, Now, I don't know. Things can change so quickly. Um, I really don't know. Um, I think... More broadly, and I think that's something that I will probably return back to, um, is the significance of when I read the book on irregular fighters, what I wanted to to do is to um, give witness um, about the fate of people who are pretty badly treated and often can't can't express it themselves because they are, yeah, they are marginalized, they are incarcerated or something like that. So just so even though I can't do anything about it myself because I'm just an academic um, and maybe the time is not right yet to do that. I, I I, think it is important to give to bear witness to these things. Now, the Clausewitz book is not so much of that or my Clausewitz research is not so much of that um, nature, but I hope that with my next project on settler colonialism and resistance against that, um, I will be able to um, go back to that, to this kind of bearing witness. And I think another aspect that I would like to carry into the future is that, um, uh, a lot of that kind of research on colonialism, um, and that's important for my intellectual history, point of view, um, there is a lot of, so there are a lot of problems about archives, you know, appropriated archives, archives that have been, not only archives, also, you know, pieces of art or a cultural uh, heritage or something that has have been taken away, yeah. and about this issue of um, repatriation and who it belongs to and what needs to happen in order to be able to give it back without, especially in the case of archives, without, you know, endangering um people who are maybe mentioned by name and who are still alive or whose families are still alive. Um, and yeah. and I think I think if yeah, maybe that is then maybe that is a way in which I would kind of um be able to justify my research in a better way to say that I would like to contribute to um this at least having the discussion and maybe doing something about you know where is that knowledge and who can access it and who can't access it and all that so i think that that would be my 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 hopes and aspirations for the future
0: yeah and that's really interesting to hear as well because i know some of the conversations that i had with with fellow uh, students was relating to What contributions does our research make and can it make a difference? So it is really interesting to hear sort of your responses to that and the way that you're sort of articulating that and thinking about how that might change. So thank Mm -hmm. you for sharing that with us.
1: No, well, (laughs) (laughs) I've. So yeah.
0: Those are all the questions I've got for you but I just wanted to say a huge thank you, it's been amazing to have this discussion with you and I've found it really really fascinating so, so thank you so much and we wish you all the best with the future projects and would love to have you back to talk about about the projects on colonialism and such once it's all finished in a few years I assume. <laughs> Yeah, well, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much for your for your
1: interest, and I'm very glad that um, my Wi-Fi didn't drop um, in my rural location here. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you
1: so much. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye.